Hey, good morning, guys. My name is Josh McEwen. I'm the youth minister here at ABC. One of the coolest things we get to do each year is our Easter services, which we're actually heading back to Atascadero uh, football field. We'll be sitting at the stadium at 10 a.m. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be incredible. We're going to have a live band, music, everything. It's going to be packed. Make sure you're there 10 a.m. on Easter Sunday. Another cool thing that recently happened in student ministries this week is we got to run a program called You Own the Night. The idea behind it is we just straight up give students all the power to run a youth group. We give them a budget, we give them resources, we give them the event planning, everything they need to run an event for the peers. It's essentially a night ran by students for students. For Tuesday night, they put together an entire movie night where hub groups got to come together, film a Hollywood video type thing and give out awards. And it was incredible. We got to watch students actually take ownership and excitement to make um, Jesus known among their peers. High school, they got to run uh, an amazing like tournament night where they did broom ball and got to do an interview with Pastor Jake Ellis. Uh, and we got to see students just take that mantle of leadership. Essentially, they got to live out that principle from Ephesians 4.12, where they're equipped as saints to build God's church. And what's the cooler way to do that than give them the reins of a Tuesday and Wednesday night? We have amazing students and Gen Z um, students that are actually stepping up, taking leadership mantles, and being someone that can actually transform their world around them. So if you see a student that was part of that student leadership program that ran that night, make sure to give them a high five, love on them, because um, they did an incredible job. Anyways, I hope you guys have an amazing Sunday, and we'll see you guys soon. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, so take a second, grab your Bible or your phone or whatever, or we'll put it up on the screen for you, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. We're just continuing through uh, this first section of our long, long series on the book of Matthew, this section called New Beginnings. So here's verse 12 in chapter 4. Now when he, when Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's what Isaiah said a long, long time ago. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So speaking of that, I want to ask you a question about Taylor Swift before we move on. Uh, if you had to summarize all of Taylor Swift's songs, what would you say that they're about? I feel like it's relatively easy to answer that. They're about romantic relationships in some way, shape, or form. Uh, basically, every song is this. I am either in a relationship or was in one previously that I'm not in anymore, and I'm either sad, mad, or happy about that. The entire country genre may be just as simple, right? It's something like we work hard, we drink a lot, and we're really nostalgic about a number of things. We're nostalgic about relationships, about our families, about our dad, our mom, our grandpa. We're nostalgic about America, whatever small town we used to live in or live in still. We're nostalgic about church in a weird way. You ever notice that? Like every country radio artist is like kind of a Christian and we're all like, we're suckers for it. It's like, oh, they said it, they're going to church. Uh, these are summary statements about genres or people. There's no way to be completely fair or comprehensive when we make a summary statement like that. It's a little reductive. It could be a little bit, uh, a little bit offensive, but it's something we do as we try to recall something, and it's normally really natural and normal, uh, and you wouldn't even notice it. You say, what was this movie about? 
Well, yeah, I can't tell you the whole movie. I'm gonna tell you what stuck out as, to my mind, the highlight, kind of a summary of the whole thing. Or what was this song about? Or maybe bits of your story. Tell me about your college days. What was life like for you as a kid? Tell me about that relationship you had. You're not gonna be able to say everything about it, so you give little summary statements that are kind of umbrella coverings over the whole thing. You'll say, I had a good childhood. My parents always sacrificed so much for me and my siblings. Or you'll say, life was hard. We didn't have a lot. Or that relationship just didn't work. We're just such different people. It's what we do when we're recalling something, and it's a statement that kind of says it all, but at the same time leaves you leaning in, saying, okay, tell me more. Okay, there's a lot there. Okay, tell me more. Now let's go back. Imagine you are a first century Jew. You're living in these regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is the Galilee of the Gentiles, Gentile regions. But you, you and your parents and their parents and their parents, you are good, faithful Jewish people. And it's been a long, hard road. And now in the first century, you're under Roman oppression. And everything about that is hard and unfair. The opportunities that you have and don't have are just unfair. The tax system is completely broken. It's hard. You're oppressed, you and your family, and your parents before you and their parents before them. And you and all of them, have been waiting hundreds of years for the deliverer. What the Old Testament would foreshadow is the Messiah, the one to come and deliver them, to save them. And finally, you hear that this notorious, kind of infamous prophet from Nazareth, his name is Jesus, and, and rumors are spreading about him and what he's claiming of himself and, and the signs and the wonders that he's doing. And finally, he comes to your town and he begins preaching. And so all the people gather around the local synagogue and you kind of push your way through and you make your way into the into the space and you look forward and you see Jesus of Nazareth, that, that strange, eccentric, traveling prophet. Rumors have spread about him already. And he starts to open his mouth and he begins preaching. Now just imagine, what does he say? How you imagine this is really important. Because what you'll say is something of a summary statement of all the teachings of Jesus. So when Jesus preached, what did he say? If you were to summarize the teaching of Jesus in one sentence, a lot of people imagine a lot of different things and some are good, some are bad, some are off base, some are kind of on point. Maybe it was turn the other cheek. That was one of the coolest things Jesus taught about, right? Or the golden rule, maybe his most popular, do to others what you would have them do to you. Some people might say something about a mustard seed and, and faith and a mountain or something like that. There was some scene where he flipped tables and he was getting kind of mean and kind of wild and that's pretty crazy. But if you had to summarize all of the teachings of Jesus in one sentence, what would you say? What would it be? I just want us to notice that we don't have to, because right here in Matthew 4, at the end of this passage, Matthew does it for us. Did you catch that? It said, Jesus began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Scholars pretty much unanimously agree that that's the central message of the teaching of Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven is here. That's the thing. That's the summary message and the foundational reality for all the teachings of Jesus. And it says it all, and at the same time, it leaves you leaning in, saying, okay, Jesus, tell me more. 
Tell me more, what does that mean? I, I see there's a lot there. That's pretty specific, but at the same time, vague enough to leave me wondering. But even as I say that, the problem is that we might understand the idea of the kingdom in some super like theoretical kind of bible way. Like we, we hear it at church a lot or we hear it in worship songs, but most of us have no idea what that means or where it came from or how it actually changes us today. The message of the kingdom of heaven being here and now. And still we all feel this kind of deep um, natural longing, this craving that the kingdom of God answers. This profound longing that every soul has. I don't know if you ever looked around recently and you just feel like no matter where you sit um, or how you vote or what you look like, together it seems like if we haven't already, we've certainly just realized together uh, that the world just isn't working. That the society and the systems and the, the, the way that we do things, it just isn't working no matter where you sit. And, and it's like we all want something that we're not getting. No matter which side of the issue you are on on any issue, for all the constant talk of uh, either progressivism or conservatism, nobody seems any happier for it or any better for it or society doesn't seem any better for it. There was a recent Gallup poll I saw that said that 17% of Americans are currently satisfied with the direction of the U.S., um, which I thought was hilarious. And, and that means that 83% are not. And that's more than either major political party, obviously. And no matter who you are, nobody's getting what they really, really want in this world. And there's this underlying sense of dissatisfaction and disdain that seems true for everybody. And it's indiscriminate. It crosses all borders of all kinds, this dissatisfaction and disdain. I really think though that a lot of it is because we all do want the same things, we just don't agree on how to get them. We all want things like justice, things like peace, things like equality, like who doesn't want that? We want flourishing as humans in all respects, in our families, our relationships, our finances, our opportunities. We want health, we want purpose, we want to be loved and to give love in return. We just can't agree on how to do any of it or how to define any of it. And this is because I believe that we all want things we were designed to want, but we refuse to worship the one we were designed to worship. And you don't get one without the other. We all want things we were designed to want, but we refuse to worship the one we were designed to worship. We want the kingdom without the king. And that doesn't exist. John Perkins said it so well, using justice as an example. He said, if you're pursuing justice outside of God and his word, whatever you're pursuing, it ain't justice. There's no way to reap the good things of the kingdom without submitting to the loving rule of the king. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. Because the good things don't flow from a human institution or a system or an ideology. They flow from the heart of a person who's our king, Jesus. Please remember this today. What we see in the passage is that the kingdom is here, but not without the king. The kingdom is here, but not without the king. I want that to stir in our hearts today and, and point us a certain direction. That's why Jesus says later on to seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added. These deep soul level longings that everybody feels, they'll finally find their yes and amen, their fulfillment in Jesus. And ultimately, that'll change how you live here and now. The way Jenny Allen says that is so great. If we can taste heaven, we live differently. 
That's what I want. I want, I want to be a people tasting heaven living differently because we understand the reality of the kingdom of God. Because when we look at Jesus and we say, what are all the teachings of Jesus about? We say it's about the kingdom of God. It's here, it's now, and at the same time, it is not yet, and it will be fully consummated and realized in the future. That's what it's about, that's what life is about, that's what our, our future and our eternity is about. We are people who are tasting heaven, and that totally changes how we live. So in order to move on, um, we, I think, need to get uh, a little academic for a second. So just answer the question, what in the world is the kingdom of heaven? Because I don't think a lot of us have, uh, for myself included, I, I struggle to like grasp it, to find handles for it and say, this is the kingdom. Let's look at a dictionary uh, from, from, this is actually called the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, really helpful resource. Gives this definition. The term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven signifies God's sovereign, dynamic, and eschatological rule. We'll explain that in a second. Ultimately, it's the reality of God's kingly rule. So when God's rulership and his reign is realized, those are previews and realizations of his kingdom. So the term is absent, but the idea is present in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh is presented as the king in Deuteronomy in 1 Samuel. He is ascribed a royal throne in the book of Psalms, in the book of Ezekiel. His continuous or future reign is affirmed all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 22, 28 says that the kingdom belongs to the Lord. And then you move forward to the Gospels. There are 103 kingdom mentions in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does things a little bit differently. Matthew has 50 mentions, Mark has 14 mentions, and Luke has 39 mentions. Matthew obviously makes a big deal of the kingdom of God. That's why as we study, that's what it says on that, on that graphic. It's a series about the kingdom of God. There's three questions that are kind of answered in that initial dic uh, dictionary definition. Three questions on the kingdom. One is, what is its essence? They say, what is it? Just real generally, what is it? And the answer to that is that it's sovereign. It signifies God's sovereign rule. There is no limit, no extent um, to, its, to its efficacy. It is absolutely sovereign, crosses everything in all way. It, it's connected with Jesus and his rule. Number two, how does it relate to Jesus' teaching and his work? And that's where we see that word dynamic. Dynamic just means it's not restricted by uh, any border, be that physical or, or time. Um, so it's not time restricted and it's not physically restricted or geographically restricted. It exists through the supremacy of Jesus whose rule has no border of time or place. He is supreme. The book of Colossians does a beautiful job showing us the supremacy of Christ. Number three, the question is, when does it come? So the kingdom of God, like is that, is that heaven? Is that out there someday? Is that here now? Was that a long time? Was that like the Garden of Eden? What is it? When does it come? And that's where we see it's eschatological. That's from the word eschatology, just meaning the study of the end things. So something that's eschatological means that it's having to do with the end of time, the end of all things. While it's not time restricted per se, it ultimately is eschatological, meaning that it will only be fully realized and experienced at the end of time. The best way that it seems scholars have come to kind of wrap this up is through a term called inaugurated eschatology that means that the, um, the kingdom has been inaugurated in and through Jesus, 
but it will not be fully realized or fully consummated um, in all that it is until the end time. So the phrase already, not yet, might ring a bell for you. It's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. D.C. Allison says this really well. He says that when Jesus announced that the kingdom of God has come and is coming, this means that the last act has begun, but has not yet reached its climax. The last things have come and will come. And he goes on. So in his proclamation of the kingdom of God, Jesus was standing firmly on Old Testament ground. At the same time, he was proclaiming a subject that made every Jewish heart throb. Yes, Jesus took this concept and transformed it from a narrow-minded nationalistic hope to a universal spiritual order in which humankind could find the fulfillment of its ultimate desires for righteousness, justice, peace, happiness, freedom from sin and guilt, and a restored relationship with God, an order in which God was king. That's the kingdom of God. It's an order in which God is king. I love how he says that. It's an order in which humankind actually ends up finding the fulfillment of its ultimate desires for righteousness, for justice, peace, the things that everybody wants. Everybody wants this. We just don't know it. We just don't realize it. Every person you know wants this. They may have a different definition of what, of what justice means or peace or happiness or righteousness, but deep in their God-created heart and soul where they bear the image of the Almighty, they want this. So in with two ways that the kingdom is seen in Jesus, just to kind of give us this explanation of what is the kingdom of God. There's two ways that the kingdom is seen in Jesus. And we'll throw up this graph that kind of breaks down um, these two really, really cool uh, verses and scenes in the book of Matthew. So one is that we see it in his words. So the kingdom in word, and then number two, we see it in the deeds of Jesus, his works, his miracles, his healings. So the kingdom indeed. And over the next few chapters, over the coming months, you're going to come across this one verse, and I don't want you to miss the, um, the repetition of it. So once in Matthew 4.23, and then again uh, toward the end of Matthew 9 in, in verse 35, Basically, both of those verses read uh, what's at the bottom of that graph. Jesus went throughout Galilee, or it might say went throughout the region, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So you'll see right there that first line, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Honestly, that's a summary statement of Matthew 5 through 7 that we're going to see over the coming months. And that's literally just Jesus teaching. And everything he's teaching is about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. You've heard it this way, but truly I say to you this way. You've heard it this way, but I say this way. Matthew 5 through 7, you see the kingdom in word. And then you're going to move from there into Matthew 8 and 9. And you're going to see the kingdom in deed through the works of Jesus, where it says there at the bottom, healing every disease, healing every sickness among the people. You're going to see the kingdom played out. What he just taught about, you're going to see it lived out in the most powerful, sensational ways. But how does it fit into the story of the Bible? So that's the kingdom. That's kind of an academic, you know, at a glance look. What what do I mean? What does the Bible typically mean when it says the word the kingdom of God? 
but we're still left with the question, how does it fit in with the actual whole story of the Bible? And to ask that is to ask how it fits into the story of you and me, because the Bible claims to be the story of, of all of humanity. And uh, Tim Mackey of The Bible Project, he does such an incredible uh, job sort of summarizing this. A lot of what I'm about to say is um, have not quoted directly from him, but really influenced by a talk that he gave. Uh, maybe we'll put a link to that. So Tim Mackey of The Bible Project, he kind of walks through the, the narrative of the Bible um, and how the kingdom and Jesus as king fits into that. So let me ask you this. When do we first read or, or hear about the kingdom in the Bible? When does it first show up? The answer is Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning. We first read about the kingdom. The language isn't there, but we first read about the idea in Genesis 1 and 2. So God, he, he sets in motion a world. He orders a world and he has rule and dominion over it. And he wants to share. So he makes humans to subdue and to rule with him. That's what the language says. That is kingdom language. Humans were made to partner together, men and women, to subdue and rule that world with him. Literally like little kings and queens under the king, acting as royal stewards of God's good world. That's our job. That's our calling ultimately. But then... What happens? Humanity wants something different. We want our own rules. We want our own good and evil. We want all of the dominion, all of the ruling, but without the submission to the actual ruler. So we start a different kingdom. And this is what, how, how it was, that's how it still is. This is what scripture calls the world or this age. And this is the, the plot conflict of the entire Bible. It's the hostile human takeover of God's intended design. We wanted something else that he wasn't offering, and we took it. So God sets in motion his plan to reassert his kingdom. The way he's going to do that is by singling out one single family. They're named Abraham and Sarah. And he sets them up as a contrast community, a contrast kingdom to the kingdom of the world, a world that would be different in such a way that would point to the love and the faithfulness of the creator. But then what happens is the family gets really, really big and they end up in slavery in Egypt. And then Pharaoh is kind of this like larger than life worldly king, like just the epitome of evil and oppression. He perpetuates the rebellion against God and just drives it further and further into the ground. So God again has to set out to reassert his kingdom Kingdom through Moses. In this scene, it's God versus Pharaoh. And who wins? God wins, obviously. Slaves are liberated and freed, and God is shown as king in Exodus 15. There's actually this recounting of the events where it says, Yahweh reigns forever and ever. God is king. And just as an aside, we can look at this scene from the book of Exodus and realize this is a picture of what happens when God is king and his kingdom is realized by people. He proves his royal authority. He asserts his reign when he forms an alternate community to the darkness of the world and he destroys the forces of evil and he invites people to live under his loving rule. What happens when his kingdom is realized? People are rescued. Evil is named and dealt with. So after this reassertion of the kingdom, God invites the Israelites to a mountain to commit to a covenant with him to live as an alternative kingdom among the kingdoms of the ancient Far East to get back on track with the design he originally had. But how do they do? 
through the leaders, the judges, the kings, they all become just like little pharaohs again and again, setting up rival kingdoms against God's true kingdom. They drive God's family further into the ground until eventually they're taken into exile in Babylon. It's what Tim Mackey refers to as a moment of open-ended closure. I love that line because that's what it felt like. It was a moment of open-ended closure at the end of our Old Testament. What is God gonna do now? What is he gonna do now? How will he reassert his rule and reign among not just one rebellious people, but two rebellious people? The Gentiles and the Jews alike. The community he set up to contrast the kingdom of the world ended up just assimilating to the world and contrasting the kingdom of God. It went entirely wrong. And that's when Jesus comes. And he presents himself as the ultimate agent through which God will once and for all reassert his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is the true and better Adam who would get right what Adam got wrong. He's the true and better Abraham who would get right what Abraham got wrong. The true and better Moses. And this is where, again, we see this idea of the kingdom being sovereign, it's dynamic, and it's eschatological. It's realized as God's reign and sovereignty is acknowledged. It's dynamic, not geographically restricted or nationalistic or or time-restricted. And it's eschatological in that it will be only fully realized at the end of all things. But it is now here. It has arrived in the coming of Jesus. It all leads to him. It all leads to Jesus who inaugurates this kingdom in his first arrival and will someday come to consummate this kingdom with his second arrival. So ultimately he came both to proclaim and to embody the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're getting into right now. That's what the book of Matthew will continue to be about, especially in the next four or five chapters. So what does all of that have to do with you and with me right now today. So we have these teachings and these stories just like they had, and they're meant to do the same thing for us as they did for the people who first heard Jesus teach and the people who first saw his healing work and and felt his healing touch and saw the signs and the wonders that he did, ultimately leading to his death and resurrection, the ultimate sign, wonder, healing work. They're meant to draw you and me into a life-changing encounter with the living God, who is the king over all of the kings. It's meant to draw us into life in his kingdom, which is better. It's just better. It's better than anything else, better than anyone else. Life in his kingdom. When you encounter King Jesus, that's just how it is. Everything is flipped upside down and rearranged. Nobody walks away from an encounter with Jesus without being radically altered in some way. You see it all throughout the Gospels, and we will in just a few chapters. He's just changing lives with just a touch on the, the hem of his robe, and a woman is healed. He just speaks healing to somebody, and they see You can't encounter Jesus without being radically altered in some way. The way Brian Laritt says it is that the gospel will dominate a person and part of the reconstruction of that person will be a reorienting of our view of everything. I think of this as just this movement in our hearts and minds away from the kingdom of me, I would call it, to the kingdom of God. That's a choice I want us to make. That's an intention I want us to set in our hearts to move away from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. This is what you'd call sanctification or spiritual growth or life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Whatever you want to call it, 
This gradual progression away from the self-centered default of my mind and my heart and my hands to a God-centered, kingdom-minded way to be human. And to do that is to live how we were always made to live. I want us to see that choice today. That's what the, the reality of the kingdom of God means. That it gives us a choice and we have to choose one. And it's this, the kingdom of me versus the kingdom of God. Every person to ever live will lean into one of those two realities and stories and they'll choose to live their entire lives in one of those ways. The kingdom of me takes all kinds of different forms. We, we you know, identify or tribalize with whoever we want to and, and we make that ultimate or we make that king. Maybe it's, that looks like the kingdom of, of family fun or the kingdom of success or the kingdom of monetary gains and possessions. Who knows? The reality is that the plot conflict hasn't changed since the garden. We either submit to the loving rule of King Jesus or we find someone or something else to rule our lives. And most often that's ourself expressed through some way. And we've said it before that every other option besides Jesus is a greedy, insecure tyrant who doesn't know where to go or when to stop, including and especially you and me. I'm an awful king of my life awful. The kingdom I would design for myself is an awful place, leading not to life, honestly, but to death. I want you today to choose which kingdom you live for. And maybe you've chosen that before, maybe you never have. But either choose today for the first time or be refreshed and reminded and re-encouraged to choose today. I live for the kingdom of God. The things of my own little kingdom, they're nothing. They're worthless. I want the kingdom of God. And then I just want you to commit. This message really feels very introductory, I think, to some of the upcoming themes in the book of Matthew. I just want you to commit with us to lean into the next few chapters of Matthew, maybe more than you ever have. And as we read, I think we either typically read the Bible in a posture of open or a posture of closed. So a closed posture says, here's what I already think, here's who I am, Let's see how Jesus might accommodate that and fit into the empty spaces that I choose to give him. But an open posture of reading says this, Jesus, I want the gospel to dominate every square inch of my life. Use your word to tear down every assumption and value that I have that's opposed to your kingdom and reconstruct my life to be a radical reflection of King Jesus. That's an open ready reading of the Gospel of Matthew. The truth is that most of the world and most of our culture is actually too narrow-minded and too afraid to read the Gospels this way. But you can't grasp a truth like the kingdom of heaven and not be changed and not want to hear more. So that's where we are right now in the, in the fourth chapter of Matthew in verse 17. He gives us this summary statement of the teaching and the work of Jesus it's all about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is here. And it says just enough to almost say it all. But at the same time, you know there's a lot there. And there is. I just want you to lean in over the coming weeks and the coming months and just say, okay, Jesus, tell me more. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the kingdom of heaven. I thank you today just for time to, to try to dig into it a little bit and maybe get 
practical with, uh, with what it means that there is a kingdom, an alternate kingdom to the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of myself. Or there's a different way to live. There's a different story to live into. One where Jesus is realized as king and everything that my, my soul most deeply and truly longs for and craves finds its fulfillment. The justice I want to see in the world, the righteousness I want to see, the peace, the kindness. Father, that exists only in and through Jesus as king. So I pray today that no matter where we are on the faith spectrum, if we've never submitted to your loving rule before, or if we have, God, would we be encouraged and reminded and refreshed about that choice? And would we, together as a church, lean in like we never have before? Father, lean into the teachings of Jesus in the next few chapters. And would we do so with an incredibly open posture to you? I don't want to go in just knowing everything about who I am and what I think about everything. And here's who I am. Here's my job. Here's what I think about the world. Here's my political views. Here's how I think about parenting. Here's how I think about being married. Here's how I think about being a friend or a sister or a brother. I don't want to go in with that. I just want to go in and read the teaching of Jesus and say, Jesus, change me however you see fit. If there is anything that's out of line or not conforming to your image or it's even opposed to your kingdom, God, would you just rip that out of me? Do surgery on me. Take it out. Make me a radical reflection of King Jesus. Let us read the words of Jesus in the, in the coming months and believe them and take them and act upon them and reorient our entire lives, reorder our lives around the teaching of King Jesus. And to do that, we will be further realizing and living into the kingdom of heaven. Father, we love you. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.